Well, good morning once again, and if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Chris, and I get to open God's Word with you today, and I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. It's one of the big key epistles to a church, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church, and we're going to see in the passage we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18, and we're going to read into chapter 2, verse 5, yet another aspect of the invitation that God gives to each of us to come as we actually are. So I invite you to read along with me, either on the screen or using the YouVersion app, using that events function, and you can geolocate onto us here and have all of the message notes, or you can simply read along in your copy of God's Word as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is God's holy, inerrant, eternal, and infallible word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. In the series that we are in, talking about living in the light of God's invitations, 
we are trying to reflect on the reality of what it means to come to a God who doesn't want us to come with all of our religious put-togetherness, all of our ethical superiority, all of our political power, all of the goodness and strength that we have, but rather we have a God who is inviting us to come to Him as we actually are. So, over the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus inviting us to come to Him when we are weary and heavily burdened, right? We've heard Him inviting us to come to Him when we are thirsty, when life can't satisfy us, when we're hungry for righteousness, when we need life, and we feel like everything in this world is full of despair and death, and we can come to Him when we are broken, right? So, we've even seen how He wants us to come to Him, which is often. He wants us to come often to Him in prayer and come with a childlike spirit to ourselves. And today, I'm going to, as we, as we begin the process of closing this series out, we've got a few more weeks with it, um, I want us to reflect on what does it mean to come to Jesus in our weakness, In fact, to see that that's exactly the only way that we can come to Jesus. That He wants us to come to Him not when we are feeling strong and all put together, but He wants us to come to Him in all of our weakness, recognizing the reality of who we are. And in the passage that we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, we're going to see kind of four key things themes that reflect this invitation of God, that there's a reality to God's choice, there's a conflict that God is involved in, there's a confidence that God wants to give His people, and then there's a commission that God gives us in our weakness, and how we live that commission out shouldn't be a reflection of our own strengths and abilities, but rather the weakness that we come to God with. So, God's choice, God's conflict, God's confidence, and God's commission. Let's talk about the reality of God's choice. God doesn't choose people who have their act together. Okay? Now, you know, I know it's been a long time for some of us since we've been on the playground, Um, but how many of us picked the weakest kids whenever it was our turn to pick teams, right? You know, you picked the kid that was worst at soccer or worst at four square or worst at at, at baseball or whatever it was that you were playing. Even if you were playing tag or something, you always picked the best, right? If it was your turn to pick, you wanted to pick the fastest kid, the best athletes, the smartest kids, right? You wanted to pick a good team. It's what makes sense. And when we think about how that gets translated into contemporary society, who do companies hire? Companies don't hire the worst candidates and go, that's the person I want. Not if they're a good company, right? They hire the best and the brightest. When you're trying to find a spouse or somebody to be in a relationship with, it's generally a bad idea to find the worst possible person and go, yeah, I'm going to pick you, right? So for all those reasons... We tend to think 
that God is in the business of choosing people who are super special, the best, the brightest, the bravest, and we miss the reality that that is not only not how Jesus lived his life, but that is not the reality of the kingdom of Jesus Christ at all. That, in fact, God is in the business of choosing the weak for His team. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Let me reread what we just read. For consider your calling. Think about who you were when Jesus called you. Not many of you, Paul says, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose. Did you catch that the first time we read that through? He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, we see this in the life of Jesus Christ. When He assembles His A-team, His 12 guys, He chooses a traitor who will betray Him. He chooses a political exile terrorist. He chooses a tax collector who is despised by ordinary people. He chooses a group of uneducated fishermen. Do you get the idea? He didn't pick the rabbinical students who had studied all of their lives and who had the, their, their most spiritual lives together. He chose ordinary people because God does not choose people to come to be His children and be in His kingdom based on their strength. And our souls, our spirits can accept this typically on one level. We can nod our heads and say, I get it, I understand it, but really deep down inside, gosh darn it, I believe I'm in God's kingdom because God saw something special inside me. And that's only true if you understand that what God saw inside of you was a greater weakness and a greater brokenness and a greater ineffectiveness than you could possibly know about yourself. Because God chooses people not based on their strength, but on their weakness. You know, this is not a new principle, by the way. If you go all the way back in the Old Testament, why did God choose the Jews. I had an Old Testament professor who tried to drive this point home to us in seminary. He had a, a little rhyming scheme. He said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Now, what he wanted us to learn from that, and I remember it all these years later because of that, is this particular point. God said to the children of Israel, it was not because you were more than the Egyptians. It's not because you were the best or more special. Uh, in fact, God goes on to say, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than the other people. That, that's not why I set my love on you. That's not why I chose you. You were, in fact, the fewest of peoples. God chose Abraham and his descendants because Abraham only had one child. <laughs> he chose them because they were weak. And he goes on to say, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he made, that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In other words, he's saying, children of Israel, 
understand this. You may be millions of people now. I chose you when you were one man. I chose to redeem you and make you mine, not because you were the best, the brightest, the strongest, the most powerful, the most beautiful. I chose you because you were weak. And you see that principle carried out throughout Scripture over and over again. That God is in the business of gifting the weak with His kingdom. In fact, you could even put it this way, only the weak can receive the kingdom of God. If you doubt that, take a look at the Beatitudes. Jesus said this, Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are hungering for thirsting and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you don't see a single winner on that list, do you? Blessed are the powerful, blessed are the brightest, blessed are the most beautiful, blessed are the people who have political dominion and authority. No. The people who get the kingdom of God are the weak. That's hard for us to understand. And it becomes even more confusing when we recognize that Jesus died for the weak. Scripture is explicit in this reality. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Not once you got your spiritual act together, I used to be weak, I used to be addicted, I used to be broken, then I cleaned myself up, and now Jesus can die for me. No, that's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's man trying to earn his way into a relationship with God. The good news of the gospel is that while you were a mess, Jesus died for you. And in Jesus, we gain all that we didn't have. All that we didn't have when we were weak. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 1.30, which was in the passage we read. It says there, because of Him, because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. God the Father chose you when you were weak, and He's placed you in Christ Jesus. You've been united with Him in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, and through that, Jesus becomes to you the wisdom that you didn't have, the wisdom from God. He becomes your righteousness. God put all of our sins on His Son, Jesus, and took all of the perfection of Jesus and put it into our spiritual bank accounts so that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and yet we get the credit of the righteous life that Jesus lived. He becomes to us our sanctification. We once were not holy, different from the rest of the world, but now we have been made holy, declared holy, because Jesus lived a holy life. We get that credited to us, and we get to be redeemed. All of our brokenness, all of our weakness, all of the, the things that make us less than perfect... Jesus is in the business of remaking and renewing that we might reflect the glory of God. Now, that's God's choice. God chooses 
the weak. Let's talk about the idea of God's conflict that we find here in this passage. See, the positive way is to say God chooses the weak. Maybe a negative way to say this is that God is against the strong. He's not just choosing the weak, He's actively against the strong. Now, here's what you need to understand. When the Bible talks about strength in this particular way, it typically means two things. It's talking about the strong as those who think they don't need God. And by the way, that's pretty much you and me every single day, isn't it? There are lots of times we think, well, you know, I don't need God for this. I'm just going to handle this situation, this circumstance on my own. I am that way. And God's against us in that moment. God's against the strong uh, in, in Scripture when we talk about those people that don't want to be dependent on God. Now, if you've raised children, you know there comes points all throughout their childhood where they don't want to depend on you. They want to do it on their own, right? And in many measures, that's a healthy way of a child's maturity and development. But it's kind of foolish when a four-year-old wants to, you know, make dinner. Right? The task they are not skilled for or equipped for. Um, God is against the strong in this particular sense. In the passage we're reading here today in 1 Corinthians 1, look at this. It is written, so it's an Old Testament principle, it's being quoted. God says, I'm going to destroy something. What is it that God's going to destroy? The wisdom of the wise. The people who think, I don't need God's way to figure out life. God says, I'm against you. I'm going to throw, I'm going to destroy the discernment of the discerning. In fact, I will thwart it. I will stop the plans and the agendas of people who think they don't need me to figure out the way the world works. In fact, Scripture goes on to say, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God is actively opposed to the idea that we don't need Him and that we don't have to depend on Him. And this is the problem with all of us in the human race. From the garden on, the promise, the lie of Satan was that if we partook of the fruit that God had forbidden to us, we could become, what? Like God. We wouldn't need Him. You don't need God to tell you what is right and wrong, Satan said. You can figure that out on your own. You don't need God to give you sustenance. You can take it for yourself. Well, doesn't the world operate that way today? I don't need God to tell me what is right and wrong. I don't need God to sustain me. I am a creature of my own making and my own power. But God's been opposed to that from the very beginning. Just flipping your Bibles a little bit past Genesis 3 when man fell, and the very first encounter that you find of God uh, encountering people who want to live in their own strength, or one of the first encounters, is that God says to the people at the, at, uh, on the plains of Shinar, uh, they wanted to build a place called Babel. 
a tower, right? And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We want to build a city for our own glory, for our own strength, and we will protect ourselves. We don't want to be dependent on God. And God is opposed to it. He says, this place, I'm going to call it Babel, and I'm going to confuse the language of all of the earth there. And from there, the Lord dispersed all of the people over all the face of the earth. Do you understand what you're supposed to be getting there? God's against man's plans to preserve and protect himself when we don't come to him for our security there. God is in the business of demanding that we recognize that he alone is truly strong. Now, the greatest of the ancient rulers of earth was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. A man who ruled over a significant portion of what we know not only as the Middle East today, not only Iran, Iraq, but much of what we would call contemporary Russia, all the way down into India, across most of the Mediterranean world, was this king named Nebuchadnezzar. And he had an encounter with God as the strongest man alive. Now, he had a moment of a fall. But before his fall, this is what we find in Scripture recorded Nebuchadnezzar saying. Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He had built a big, massive, beautiful city full of gardens and waterworks and all of his wealth being reflected there and his power. And he said, I did this. And then God, who had warned him in dreams and through the words of his prophet Daniel, said, I'll take it away from you in a second. And he did. And Nebuchadnezzar became insane and lost his kingdom and lost his power and lost his influence and ate grass and wandered in the fields like an animal. God graciously restored his mind. This is Nebuchadnezzar's prayer after. We heard him before. This is him after. I blessed the Lord Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion, not my dominion, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. I thought I was so powerful, but God makes the stars move. He does whatever he wants on earth. And he says, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one has more power than God. I want to ask you a question. Do you ever think you don't need God? Or that God wants you because you're strong? Have you ever bought into the myth that God is excited about your abilities and what you're going to contribute to His kingdom? 
Do you see how quickly and easily we can forget that God is opposed to man's self-strength? Now, there's a way of misunderstanding this that fails to recognize that God does want us to have a confidence in which we live. Because there are some people that live their lives making much of their own weakness in a way to sort of be the center of attention. In fact, to avoid responsibility. Now, there's a joke in my wife's family that when she and her brother were growing up together, that whenever her brother didn't want to do a household chore, he would do it poorly so that he could say, well, I'm just not very good at that. You must do it because you're better at it. <laughs> okay? Well, some of us can take the first part of this message and we can say, well, I'm, I'm pretty weak. I'm not very good at these things. I'm, I don't want to make much of my own gifts, so I'm just not going to do something for God's kingdom. And... I'm also not really going to believe that God really enjoys me, delights in me, or wants me to come to Him and use my gifts for His kingdom, but to do it in His strength. Do you see how we can twist quickly a spiritual truth? But God wants us to come to Him in confidence. He just doesn't want us boasting or placing our confidence in anything other than Him. Whenever the Bible talks about boasting, it's talking about a kind of a military cry that, you know, you would give before you go into battle and your confidence would be, we are really good, we're really tough, we're really powerful, and we're going to win this battle. Go, go, go. Or you might see it today on a football field, you know, when the teams come charging out on the field and they burst through the paper. Look at us. We're so awesome. We're so strong. We're so powerful. And yet, you know, somebody's going to go home as a loser right? God wants us to have a real world confidence in Him. He doesn't want us to be relying on our own strength and our own abilities. And so, we find passages like this that we just read, no so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is not wanting us to be boasting about ourselves. So, you know what He's going to do? He's going to enable us to see our weakness. Have you ever thought of what a great gift it is for God to expose you for who you really are? I don't know about you. I hate being weak. I don't like being out of control. I want to be strong. I want to be right. I want to be smart. I want to be a winner. And God's grace comes to us, and He says, I'm going to show you exactly how weak you are. The Apostle Paul had this in a divine encounter on the Damascus Road when he, the powerful persecutor, was suddenly blinded, by a God that he had not believed was alive, but who was resurrected and encountered him on this road. When he became a missionary, he had a whole different spirit. 
He came to the Corinthians. He told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. This is Paul, the super educated guy. Paul, who was physically tough and who would be tortured repeatedly. Paul, who had all of this brilliance and acumen and charisma and ability to draw people to himself. When he went on mission with God, he said, I want you to know how I came to you. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. But I came anyway because God had sent me to do something that only He could do. In fact, one of the ways that God often shows us our weakness is that He, in fact, sends us to do something that seems humanly impossible. Humanly impossible to do. So, uh, how many of you are familiar with the story in the Old Testament of Gideon? Gideon is uh, an Israelite man of no real consequence whatsoever. God chooses him because of his weakness, and he finds Gideon hiding in a press with the crops that he's trying to thresh in an olive press with, with like, a, like a, a camouflage over it. God finds Gideon hiding and says to him, I'm, I'm picking you to deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. And he says, go in your might and do it. <laughs> Gideon's response is, uh, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And by the way, Manasseh was an insignificant clan or an insignificant tribe. So he's of an insignificant clan in an insignificant tribe. And he says, and I am the least in my father's house. I'm the least important person in my family. My family's least important in this clan. This clan is the least important inside Israel. And you chose me. Are you sure you got the right address? <laughs> but brothers and sisters, part of the beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't want us to be relying on our strength, so He sends us to do things that only He can do, and in that, He will expose our weakness. Sometimes we want to go to the places where we're strong. We want to serve in church where we are strong. We want to, to build relationships where we are strong, and God is saying, don't you get it? I don't need your strength. I want you to go where you're weak. In fact, sometimes God doubles down. He makes us even weaker. It wasn't enough for the Apostle Paul to be blinded on the road to Damascus, to be humbled and stripped of his pride, to come to the Corinthians in all of his weakness and fear and trembling. In fact, God would give him great visions of glory and bring him into the presence of heaven itself. And then God said, you know what? I got to save you from your pride, Paul. Because you're going to start thinking that you earned this or that you deserved it. So, Paul said this, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of my revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Sometimes God will send us into difficult situations to do the impossible, and He will double down and make us even weaker than we already were. Why? Maybe we get a clue from the rest of the story with Gideon. 
You guys know the rest of the story, right? The Lord says to Gideon, the people who are with you, Gideon, Gideon finally agrees to obey God and and he raises up an army of about 32,000 people. They're going to go into battle against an army that numbered at least half a million. So already they are dramatically outnumbered, more than 10 to 1. But God says to Gideon, it's too much. Your people are too many. Uh, If I give the Midianites under your hand, Israel will boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. If you win now with 32,000 people against half a million, you'll be like, we're the underdogs. Look at us. God says, no. So what he does is reduce Gideon's army. He's like, 32,000, that's too many. Assemble everybody and say, if you're scared, go home. So 22,000 leave. By the way, this is not a good strategy if you're a general. (laughs) And now Gideon's left with 10,000. Okay, God, we're good to go. Nope, still too many. Now we're going to go down by a brook, and I'm going to make a random test that makes no sense. People who drink a certain way from the brook, you get to keep those. Everybody else you send home. God takes Gideon's army down to 300. 300 men against an army that covered the land like locusts. So that when they won, which they did, they could never say, we did it. Are you beginning to get a picture of why God chooses the weak? It's because He's in the business of bringing Himself glory through the weak. When we are weak, God strengthens us in our weakness. When we go to Him with all of our brokenness and weakness, we get to go to Him and find that He will make us strong. Paul would say, uh, or God would say to Paul, in the moment of his greater weakness, he would say, Paul, my grace is enough for you. My undeserved gift, it's enough for you to do what I want you to do. My power, God's power, is made perfect in your weakness. So brothers and sisters, is that true for you? Do you believe that God's grace is enough for you? That God will come to you in your weakness and He will make Himself strong. And for that reason, we can be content with our weaknesses. Paul would write, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can be content in our weaknesses, not trying to outgrow them, but going to God with them and saying, God, here I am, weak, but you show yourself strong. We can come to Him in our weakness, knowing that in the place of our weakness is the place that He will provide. Donna referenced this earlier in her wonderful prayer when she was leading us in in prayer right before this, this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, some of our favorite verses here. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with what? 
our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, not because we are strong, not because we're smart, not because we've figured out everything the Bible's ever said, not because we're ethically perfect. No, we come before God confident because Jesus the high priest is interceding for us. And there at the throne of grace, we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We will find that which we did not deserve and we could not have earned and we will not get what we did deserve. We will come to God needy and find there the abundance of His grace. And as a result, our lives will not display our strength, our smartness, our wisdom, our beauty, but instead display the power and beauty and majesty and strength of God. Right? That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians later on this. Here, it's just so beautiful when God says this. We have this treasure, this gospel treasure, in jars of clay. We're the jars of clay. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What if people look at your life, instead of saying, gosh, that person's smart, they're beautiful, they're amazing, they go, man, that person is weak. There's no way they could have done this. There has to be a God that's on their side. What if that's true of churches too, not just individuals? When we live this way, God alone gets the glory for the victories. That's why Paul is so eager for us to boast, to have a confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. We as believers can say, I don't know what to do. I don't have the strength. I don't have the solution. So God, you're going to have to do it because <laughs> I can't figure it out. We can boast of our weaknesses. Now, Paul would say this. He said, if I boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, that's not what we do, is it? We say, man, I'm really smart. I figured that out. <laughs> I'm really strong. I won. I'm really clever. I'm a winner. Paul said, you know what I talk about? I talk about how weak and broken and powerless I am. And therefore, how strong and beautiful and amazing Jesus is. We can admit our weakness and cry out to God for His strength. We can say things like this, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. This is Jehoshaphat, by the way, crying out to God when a great army was invading the children of Israel. And he said, God, we're not winners, we're losers. We can't stop them. We're powerless. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Are you willing to come to God like that? God, my strength is gone. I can't possibly win. I don't know what to do. So I'm looking to you. When we do that, brothers and sisters, God gives victory. 
the thing that keeps us so often from victory is we're trying to fight the battles of life in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our relationships with our children. We're trying to deal with life out of our own strengths and abilities. And God's saying, I don't get any glory there. Victory comes to the people who cry out to the living God. God's response to that prayer and to Jehoshaphat, by the way, is recorded in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15, where God says this, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. He goes on in verse 17 to say, You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of your God. You go to the battle, hold your line, and watch God win. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. I want to ask you, is God your, comp- is God your confidence? Because He is simply present with you and loves you despite all your weakness. Do you see how this changes our understanding of what the very gospel is? It's not good news for people who have got themselves all together, but it's people who place their faith in a strong Savior and acknowledge their weakness and their brokenness. Now, one final thing we want to see in this passage, and that is this, is that there's a commission, a mission that God has sent us on. And it's to preach weak. It's to preach weak. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that just because we step into the realm of telling other people about Jesus and living for His glory, we don't suddenly transition into trying to do it out of our own strength, but rather recognizing that God alone can and must do that which He alone can do. And that applies to our method. We preach weak in our method. We, we, we have a weak methodology within the church. We don't, we don't do things the way the world does it. We preach weak in our own strength, yet powerfully in the gospel. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He says, listen, do you remember how I came to you? I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God, not with lofty speech or wisdom, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He goes on to say, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now that, brothers and sisters, is so critical for you and me. We think, someday I'll tell my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers about Jesus whenever I've figured out how to do it. Really? Oh, I, you guys know I'm not against evangelism training. But that's never the problem, is it? The truth is, we don't tell people about Jesus so often because we are relying on our strength. 
We're trying to come up with the clever answer, the sophisticated argument, the when. And we act like if we don't see the results that come from obedience, that we're losers. Do you see how this is so backwards? Listen, Jesus doesn't need you to figure out a perfect presentation to save anyone. He needs you to obey Him in faith, relying on Him. We have a weak method. If the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of your New Testament, said, listen, I didn't show up with smart, cool presentations and great ways to say this, and I didn't wait till I had been completely retrained by Peter on how to evangelize. I just showed up telling you about Jesus. Maybe that's what we ought to be doing too. Not just a weak method, but a weak message. A weak message. Have you ever thought about the Christian message? It's not a Christian message. It's not a message for the powerful, the effective, the people who've got their act together. Rather, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved... It is the power of God. God does something through the gospel. It's the gospel itself that is the power of God unto salvation. It is not your presentation of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel itself that saves people. Not you. It's not the power of the preacher or the teacher, though we certainly want to surrender all our gifts to God's glory. It's never them that does that thing. It's the Holy Spirit of God. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Our method and our message are weak. What's this? God sent His Son into the world to live a perfect life that I couldn't live, to die an atoning death on my behalf, to be raised from the dead. Do you expect me to believe that? And the answer is yes. And I know it's crazy. It's also true. And if you believe on Him, you will be saved. And you can have life beginning now and have it forever. And I so desperately want that for you. Brothers and sisters, we need to stop trying to outsmart God and be obedient. After all, it's the way of a weak Messiah, isn't it? As Rachel so beautifully pointed out to us, we have a weak yet conquering Savior. During that children's message, we were reminded God didn't show up with the army of angels. Jesus didn't show up throwing Himself off the temple in grand demonstrations of His power. He didn't take Satan's shortcut to rule the world. He showed up in the middle of a barn as a baby to terrified parents who became refugees fleeing a persecuting king who hid Him away in a remote town of no account such that no one thought anything good could come from that town. And his own family was like, you're just a carpenter's kid. Who do you think you are? You see, when God showed up in the world to win the world, 
He showed up weak. He showed up weak. The world is full of people like the Jews and the Greeks referred to here in verses 22 through 25. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. It's not what either of them want, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This is God's wisdom. This is God's power. This broken man, brutalized, beaten, scarred, terribly tortured with a crown of thorns upon his head, spat upon, mocked, stripped naked, his clothes divided by soldiers at a cross, That's God's winning strategy. What? Because to everyone that God is calling, Jews and Greeks, this is Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Than men. Let's come weak to Jesus. Let's pray. Awaken us, O Father, to the ways we seek to live in our own strengths, our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own power. Forgive us and cleanse us. We come to you confessing that we are in need of a Savior. Forgive us for the times we believe this, but only believe it half-heartedly in ways that apply in theory, but not in reality to our daily situations and our daily needs. Forgive me so often showing up in this pulpit full of my own strength and insights and clever arguments. You alone can save. You alone can stir. You alone can sin. So God, make us a people who are reliant not on our own strength, but on you. And if that means you've got to expose more of our weaknesses, then we invite you to do that as scary as that is. So that the world will not look at us, but look beyond us and discover there a miracle of God's power and grace. So send us out this week into the highways and byways of life to proclaim good news of a weak yet conquering Savior. And give us a confidence in that message and a confidence when we come before you. That we don't come before you with our act together. But in all our brokenness and weakness and heartache, we come to you crying out. And there, there before our risen, all-powerful Savior, we will find the power, the grace, (laughs) and the mercy that we need. Would you do this work through your Holy Spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.